I would try to impart resilience to students. My, my reasoning was that, you know, society, when they get out into the real world, they're not going to be protected. So even though they're young, you do want to, you know, you can't be too harsh, right? You, but you do need to get them a little bit along the path to, to develop a, a thicker skin in some situations where they can function. Um, you know, that was always met with, well, we're, we're, we're trying to change society. If your goal is to change society rather than to, to raise a functional child, well, then that dysfunction is actually a good thing because they're not going to be content with society as it is. Uh, and that's what I think we're kind of seeing is, is this rise in anxiety, this rise in mental illness in children going out into the real world and, and demanding that the, wor the world conform. Welcome to the New Flesh Podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Ricky Allpike, and joining me once again is Jonathan Astro. How are you? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm good, Ricky. Uh, no, I'm very excited uh, to chat to Paul Rossi, uh, uh, who was unfairly cancelled uh, uh, years ago. Uh, like you will be cancelled one day, Ricky. So I can only hope. Yeah? <laughs> well, you're do doing a good job on the other podcast. Yes, I know. Uh, b b before we throw it to the interview, uh, it's, it's probably a good idea we mention the fact that uh, Paul changed microphones sort of after about 10 minutes or so. So you'll kind of hear a difference in his voice. It becomes much richer and uh, fuller after that 10 minutes. So I have nothing to add. Yes, that happened. Paul Rossi is a former high school maths teacher whose outspoken views on the anti-racism training being taught in his high school got him cancelled. Paul is subsequently uh, Paul has subsequently written many articles exposing the woke indoctrination sweeping through the schools in the US and also runs Chalkboard Heresy with Frank McCormick. Chalkboard Heresy is a website and media programming brand that produces content relevant to public school teachers, parents and students who are concerned about woke indoctrination in kindergarten through to year 12. Paul, welcome to the New Flesh. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure to be here. So before we delve into your personal story and, and other things, I think it might be helpful for our audience if we spend a little time on critical race theory. Uh, for quite a while now, we've heard that CRT is uh, an esoteric subject taught in some Ivy League law schools only, and that uh, what is being taught in schools is, is probably history or, or, or just how it is or something like that. Uh, what's your what's your current perspective on on critical race theory? Well, they're not wrong. They're not uh, entirely wrong about that. I mean, it did it did germinate in its current form that the phrase critical race theory from an academic um, investigation, critical legal studies in law schools in the seventies. Um, but effectively, what it means today for for um, teachers and students in in our education system is a form of praxis whereby these these ideas about the nature uh, of Amer America, the United States, and, and British-speaking uh, European colonial powers generally are that society has been organized to privilege uh, one racial group uh, over others, and that that, that, in, that sort of original sin permeates to this day. Uh, and it is an ex has tremendous explanatory power for why disparities persist, even when um, progress has been made legally to extend uh, the, the rights to all all citizens. So um, there's a there's a constant awareness and uh, uh, sort of a permeating narrative, which is which is. Uh, pushed out to all students, all teachers, all administrators, all faculty, all staff, everyone involved in the project of education, uh, 
that uh, the legacy of slavery is the dominant force in in our lives, in in the lives of uh, minorities and 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 white people, uh, and that that gives privilege to white people and um, and and uh, continues to oppress marginalized groups such as American blacks and uh, Asians and so on. So, what does it mean? What, what do we mean when when people say? Is it being taught in schools? You know what I mean? So how do we link right. all of that theory with how it's actually being uh, delivered in real terms? Right. So if you if you think of it like a kind of a distillation process from the academic papers in the 70s um, to the subsequent scholarship in the 80s and 90s and then getting into education schools and promoters of these theories as they move into institutions like the educational system. And so it is a form of activism at that point. It, it, it sort of hops over or kind of migrates from mere scholarship into activism. And so the teachers that are coming out of ed schools, my colleagues, uh, both in public and private schools, um, are see themselves as activists and see their job as to rectify um, the the uh, disparities in, in society. And so part of that is raising children, uh, teaching them to themselves become activists and pursue the, the path of equity, equity sort of being the reallocation of shares in society, um, which is basically a socialist project, Marxist project. Mm. Well, do do proponents of CRT do that? Do they call it critical race theory, or do they prefer terms like anti-racist training or or inclusion training? Yeah, I mean, some of them really do. I, I, and Kimberly Crenshaw, one of the project, you know, the creators of critical race theory, or one of its one of its uh, offshoots, intersectionality, they do embrace the term, and they you know they talk about it being an academic discipline that they don't do in schools. They, they're correct in that they don't teach it as an academic discipline in schools, they practice it. I think that's really the distinction that's being effaced there. Um, but yes, they do, I mean, it's their term. Um, it, it, it's, it finds its expression in, in anti-racism, anti-racist policies, uh, DEI, all of these various forms of, uh, of interventions. Um, but it is, um, and, and there's of course offshoots of it from that tree. So whiteness studies is one example. There's an entire branch devoted to, to whiteness mm. and what whiteness is as property and so on. And that's very dominant in these schools as well. They really want racial consciousness among the students um, so that they can be self-consciously aware of how to be an ally in certain situations and how to see their peers in terms of group dynamics and so on. But I just thought uh, one of your answers there, you mentioned that some of your colleagues see themselves as activists. I see this as such a fascinating thing because I can imagine a thought experiment where if you take one of your colleagues and they've got a child and then they were in my class and then I'm teaching them about uh, the god of Jupiter or something or teaching them about uh, could be anything that I'm passionate about um, that is not to do with teaching maths or English. How do they square? It's just so presumptuous to me to, to, to think that you should be meddling with people's um, values uh, in that way. D don't you think? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, 
I, I feel like I can take their perspective because it was my perspective for a long time. I, I would have aligned with this, um, you know, a decade ago. I would never have seen myself in this position. Um, but but it really is a form of um, it does have that religious cast to it. But you're really on the side of the angels. You you're you are implementing justice in society. You know, that's the, that's social justice. So, you know, as a social justice, you might not want to call yourself a social justice warrior. Some of them fully embrace that term unironically, you know, wow. um, but you, you really are, you know, you're pursuing this new God, which is um, derived from the God of history, the God of, of essentially dialectical Marxism, which is just in a different form. And you're here to implement, to transform society on earth. And that is, essentially your mission and many of my colleagues would say have, have told me that to my face when i pushed them on it so you know when you have that kind of moral imperative driving your pursuit um you know i think i think there is a real uh connection uh broadly between education and morality right so the idea that these moral uh you know these moral knights are coming into this profession with you know, the passion and the, and the, and the commitment to change society is not, a, it doesn't surprise me. It doesn't, it's not unusual in that regard. I think in the past may, it might've been, um, you know, a religious mission say, but it is a mission. Um, whether it, but it, the, the interesting thing is that it's being, what, what we see as a secular society or a secular domain now where religion has sort of left the, the culture, it's been replaced, I think, by this, wokeism you know which is essentially a set of moral intuitions uh which have which are sort of substituting for the richer tradition which, which has been left behind or dismantled well we're, we're not just seeing this in public schools uh, a lot of uh, high-end private schools are pushing diversity and equity training and critical race theory uh, but not only on their students but on the parents as well so uh, prospective parents at the Brerley School, an all-girls school on the Upper East Side, are informed uh, on their application that parents are expected to attend two diversity, equity, inclusion and anti-racism workshops per school year and write a 500-word essay demonstrating their fealty to, to those values. There are a number of other um, schools that, that do a similar thing and your former uh, high school, Grace Church High School, required children in 2020 to sign a pledge promising that they would fight against racial propaganda and interrupt biases. Uh, how widespread is the requirement that parents get this CRT and diversity training? Well, partly because of what I did and what my 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 friend Andrew Gutman did at Brearley is they're they're being much more careful about getting the parents on board. And so, not only in the examples you mentioned, but also the the enrollment contracts um, that parents sign. Uh, they they may not explicitly say that they have to align with the ideology, but they make it clear that if they dissent with any aspect of the curriculum, they can their child can be immediately taken out of the school. Um, so there are so with private schools in particular, which is my my background and what, I, what what the school I was teaching at, they are being much more aggressive in filtering out any dissent. Uh, and a lot of these places have become self-selecting um, because they're not they're not most of them at the elite level are not hurting for applicants. So they can afford to be very selective. And then the fact that when the community becomes more um, aligned with this mission, you, you kind of have this purity spiral, spiral where more and more of the parents who are aligned with it are bringing their kids in. And so I don't see it, unfortunately, getting any better at these schools. I think what we really need are 
viable alternatives for parents that are just not are just done with this and fed up with this what they're doing to their kids and and so um you know starting a school in in new york city is extremely expensive but i, I hope that somebody can can make that happen because uh really need some alternatives uh the question i have about about uh about that paul is aren't these schools why is the answer that it's hard to not be conspiratorial about this because that they get together and they go, oh, well, there's pushback and these parents are getting involved. That's, that's terrible. That's terrible. And I, and I love that the answer in the meeting is, well, well, we need to come up with a more robust uh, contract, clearly. Like, it's not, like, it's so, isn't it exhausting to, 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 to go down that route? Why did, did, I know that you were in this situation and, and there's probably maybe another person like you in the room quietly sitting, you know, staring at the floor who wants to say, um, I got an idea. I got an idea. How about we mm-hmm. just have a bit of chill and, mm-hmm. you know, take, like why have we got to go on about race all the time? And that, be would be, abs- that would be, be very problematic <laughs> because, <laughs> because that person would immediately out themselves as being um, regressive or, or whatever. And, you know, it, it's a good, it's a great question because the, the, it seems so incongruous and ironic, right? These are the schools where the elites of the elite, the Brahmins of the Brahmins are sending their kids. This, the money is not is, is not made through socialism, let's be frank, okay? This is money made on Wall Street. This is money made in the, you know, the world of high finance. And, and so how can it be that these schools, um, you know, are pushing this, these, what I, you know, what other people have called them luxury beliefs, essentially like a kind of a, a Potemkin belief system uh, so aggressively, and it, some it has I, a lot of it has to do with these schools are have a a real image problem and a real sense of the loss of their own moral authority around their own elitism. So, particularly demographically, okay. So, lot, many of these schools um, only recently, you know, admitted girls or Jews or you know, let's be honest, black kids so they need to compensate and make up for this image so they're going so hard uh particularly as they they bring in um you know they bring opportunities to a demographic that could really use it right the social capital that these schools offer is tremendous and so they need some way to um sort of dampen the potential for any cultural conflict okay because you do have very, very different kids from very, very different backgrounds in the same ecosystem, okay? This is a, this is supposed to be a community, but when one of the kids is, you know, going on a Christmas break to the, you know, to the Hamptons or the, or, you know, the, or to Bermuda, and the other one is going to go take care of their cousin in their two-room apartment in Harlem, okay, there's a, there's a lot of potential for, and, there, and the parents of those students are in contact, and you know the mere perception that some um, that some wealthy parent is going to look down their nose at my child, you you know that that is sort of a PR disaster. So the schools are on a kind of a hyper alert to this kind of thing, you know, to the to the point where if two girls on a field trip uh, who are rooming with another uh, group of students and they all start singing a Drake song and they sing the N word. You know, this is a this is a bombshell, right? Because some of the parents see this on Snapchat, and then suddenly, you know, we have to have three days of intensive 
uh, bias training and anti-racist training to address this disaster. Uh, we all have to, you know, beat our breasts and claim that the school is a racist institution because girls are simply just having fun singing to a song. Um, so, the, you know, this is the kind of hysteria that creates a, a kind of a crucible environment um, where, you know, the greatest evil that's possible is that someone could, could feel slighted racially. Um, now, you also have the added structural situation where you have a group, a, a kind of a professional association of these schools to which all of the schools belong now. It's called the National Association of Independent Schools. And there are 1,800 schools nationwide, and there's a, maybe 2,200 nationally. And these school, th this organization really sets the tone around uh, equity, inclusion, belonging, diversity. Uh, they have a thing called the Principles of Good Practice for diversity, for, for equity and inclusion. Um, and so the, this organization is tremendous cover, right? Because every school can say, we align with the principles of good practice from the National Association of Independent Schools. Um, now, the National Association of Independent Schools, on their, on, on their part, runs a hiring network. So they have a whole ecosystem around who gets hired as heads of school, as administrators. And, and they have a flagship conference called the People of Color Conference, where, which I watched, you know, uh, I, was online last year, and I watched all 100 hours of it. Uh, it was fascinating. And it's deeply, deeply infused with, you know, transformative ideologies, whether that's gender theory, critical race theory. Um, you know, I, I will say again, a lot of the a lot of this stuff is really cultural. It's 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 broad based and it's coming out of um, sort of the children of the children of the revolution that were taught by academics in, in American universities. Uh, so there are several currents that are all flowing together to create this sort of massive movement in not just education, but corporate America. And, and it's a global thing, too. So you see it with things like SEL and ESG and um, uh, CRE, a culturally relevant education. You see it with comprehensive sex education. Um, there's just a host of these um, of these sort of three-letter acronyms that are pushed by massive foundations like the Gates Foundation, Chan Zuckerberg through UNESCO, and I mean, there's there's it's it's a broad-based thing and it's global, as I'm sure you can attest. So there's a lot going on. Well, just while we're in this sort of neighborhood, I got a question uh, uh, before we get onto your onto, onto your school. Can we just talk broadly about New York? Because we talk we talk to uh, quite a few people from New York uh, for obvious reasons. It's a cultural epicenter of the world, uh, arguably. And I always ask this: in a state that is a democratic stronghold, particularly in education, where the unions are unquestioningly all left leaning, and you mentioned some other organisations that I'm sure are all involved. Um, when problems or, or issues arise, if there's no conservative in the room or no no centre-right or centrist, moderate, moderate or whatever, aren't you always beholden to the most extreme left members? Like that, they'll, Because if it's left on left all the time, and we get this in the arts uh, uh, mm -hmm. scene as well, so if it's, you've got, basically you've got a room of people, everyone in the room's on the left, so what happens is um, the most emotive arguments, the most gruelling purity tests uh, will always win. And that's always coming from the extreme left. So if there's no one to on, to the moderate or to the right, um, it seems we have to cede always to the to those extreme lefts. Do, so in in New York particularly, do do, do you find that this 
is the situation? Yeah, I mean, and some of it has to do with sort of the mode of argument uh, on the left, which tends to be more pathos-driven than, than logos-driven. So if somebody feels slighted, if somebody feels that their feelings have been damaged um, or they, they don't feel comfortable, they don't feel like they belong, you know, this is, a, this is considered an argument, right? So, so if somebody has a particular affect around how they feel like they're being perceived, this needs to be discussed. There needs to be a, you know, quote, brave conversation about it. And, and that person's experience is legitimate, is legitimate, right? The worst thing you can do to someone is to quote unquote gaslight them on their feelings, you know. So it, what what that is, I think, driving a lot of this is the the more sensitive a person is, and you know, sensitivity is not a bad thing, um, but it's become, you know, it's become a massive uh, dragon which has just escaped the cage, and now you know, there's no limit to how sensitive someone sh- can be, right? Um, and that to 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 talk about that in school, you know, I would. I would try to impart resilience to students. I would, I would say, you know, well, my, my reasoning was that, you know, society, when they get out into the real world, they're not going to be protected. So even though they're young and you do want to, you know, you can't be too harsh, right? You, but you do need to get them a little bit along the path to, to develop a, th- a thicker skin in some situations where they can function. Um, you know, that was always met with, well, we're, we're, we're trying to change society. Right. So if you're if your goal is to change society rather than to to raise a functional child, well, then that dysfunction is actually a good thing because they're not going to be content with society as it is. Uh, And that's what I think we're kind of seeing is is this rise in anxiety, this rise in um, uh, mental, you know, mental illness in in children going on to the real world and and demanding that the world the world conform even as young adults or 20-somethings or 30-somethings. They're all the people getting fired from Twitter right now. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And posting uh, pictures of their laptops with stickers all over them saying, it's my last day. That's right. That's right. Well, then I think of the video of the... of what, There was like an internal video I remember seeing where someone described their experience at the Twitter headquarters and mm-hmm. it was mostly meditation and, and going to the coffee machine and, <laughs> and all these things that, you know, eventually... <laughs> that can't really be sustained. So if it wasn't Elon Musk that was going to come in and do it, somebody else would have done mm. it. Well, this this idea of resilience, it's not it's not a new thing. Like, you know, the Eastern philosophers would talk about, you know, putting, putting leather on the soles of your feet rather than trying to put leather, you know, uh, over the entire world so that you can be protected against some of the, uh, the feelings that you might might encounter out in the real world when, when you do have to try and get along with a colleague that that you don't like or you know any any number of situations that that can make you uh yeah feel a certain way like is is there much resilience practice or or education going on in in schools in the US it's funny because um two things one i used to i i was able to convince the administration to let me teach a course on stoic philosophy which i think has a lot in common with what you're talking about it's sort of the western tradition of that um, and uh, the students really, I think, enjoyed it. Uh, we read some of the great thinkers, Marcus Aurelius, Epictetus, and we talked about how to do things in daily life where we could, we could encounter the slings and arrows of different opinions without react, you know, allowing our, you know, embodied reactions because, right, we do have 
we do have feelings about it, right? But not let those feelings dictate our actions. So we, we're not acting out of our feelings. Um, and it does align with a lot of meditative practices. Um, but what I, when I hear the term resilience, uh, when I started to hear it in 2020, uh, post-George Floyd, it was really about white resilience um, in the context of, you know, you can't shirk your, anti your, your goals as being anti-racist. And if, you're, if your efforts in that area flag, well, then you're not showing the appropriate resilience. You're showing fragility. So they, they, they've taken that word as well. Perhaps at this, this stage of the interview, uh, we should talk about your experience at Grace Church High School. Can, can you tell us a little bit about your former school and your role there? Well, I really liked the school. I mean, I, I had taught there since 2012 when the, when the high school opened. I was a founding member of the high school, which is um, you know, 14 to 18-year-old uh, students. And um, my the course that I, I taught was math. I've always loved math since I studied it in high school. And um, this was a second or third career for me. I started teaching in my 40s, and um, I, I just love to to express the beauty of math to, you know, and show that to the students and to get them engaged. And um, I did have to attend a training um, because the school always fancied itself as progressive from its, from its inception. And that was in many ways its sort of marketing proposition was that the, the colleges and universities wanted progressive kids. So if they made a high school as a kind of incubator then they would be able to, you know, that they would have an advantage over other schools in, in the selection of these students. Um, so I attended a, a, a two-day training session called Undoing Racism, which was an all-day all training um, run by a group called the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond, which was um, a very, very radical group, which the school contracted with. And you can look up their website. They're called uh, pisab.org. Um, and it was a fascinating experience. And I remember uh, coming out of that kind of in a, a kind of converted, kind of in a culty way, kind of, you know, the lights came on and I, I realized my privilege and I, you know, I felt like I needed to go out into the world and, and, and transform society myself. It's like Landmark Forum. Yeah, it was, it, it, you know, it's funny. It was a weekend and that's very much how, how it works. They break you down. They ask mm. you. Don't go to the, the are, bathroom too much. Like, stay in mm. your seat. <laughs> stay hungry. Right, show that resilience. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, um, but but most of the time, I was kind of left to my own devices, and, and there's tremendous independence in a school, particularly a new school, on how I, you can construct the curriculum. There was just myself and another teacher. She was a, very much a mentor to me because I was a new teacher. And I just loved uh, being around the kids and the energy and the fun and, and learning and all the good things. Uh, and, um, you know, gradually there was this, they started to hire more full-time diversity positions. Uh, they had an office of community engagement, um, which I thought was supposed to be about, uh, how the school would engage with the community, but it was really about how the community would engage with society. So, you know, these word games are really fascinating. Uh, and they, you know, they became more aggressive in 2017 around explicitly becoming a, quote, anti-racist school. And I remember being asked to teach a, quote, pyramid of racism to ninth graders. I had a special group of advisees. And this pyramid uh, essentially said that uh, at the top it had genocide. 
And further down in the pyramid, there were things like, um, you know, two sides to every story, or, you know, my black friend says X, uh, which were supposed to be unreal, un, unacceptable objections to any anti-racist theory if you have a black friend who, who says the opposite of that. Um, but then, of course, next to that was also something called not believing people of color. So you, know, you seem like a double bind. Uh, do I believe the person of color, or do I? I can't use that as evidence. So you know, you're basically in a situation where you're you're constrained to agree with this material psychologically. And I said I wouldn't teach it. Um, and they kind of patted me on the head and said, you know, well, it's okay. We don't have you don't have to teach this. We're gonna make you know we'll give you the training that you need. Um, and so um, the idea that you could have the training and object to it simply meant that you needed more training. So this is cult logic, right? So if you, you know, either you progress according to the steps that we have laid out for you, and they did, they actually had, you know, eight steps of progression in anti-racism. And it's okay if you're at the lower steps because we're all, we're all learning, right? We're all in a, you know, it's okay to be over here. We just want to get you from here, you know, further along so that you don't cause harm to the students, right? Harm is the constant rationale that if you don't evolve in your anti-racist journey, then you're going to cause racial trauma to the students, particularly the students of color. Um, and so the, the, the logic is always self-justifying. Um, and the idea that you could step outside of it or ask difficult, you know, ask a difficult question, which might lead people to different conclusions, means that you're not in step with the anti-racist mission. Uh, now, I happen to think that what they call the anti-racist mission or goals are, are, are simply premises and they've they were put the cart before the horse they've actually confused the premises with the goals uh, their premise is crt essentially that society is organized to pr to protect the privilege of white people and to you know uh, to oppress people of color um, if that is your if that is your pre a priori position um well, then that's, you know, that is an anti-racist premise that you're making about the need for anti-racism according to a particular prescription, um, which has to be extremely radical and require people to look at the, look uh, and think of themselves as racialized beings. And my, you know, in 2020, 2000, sorry, 2021, February, that was when I kind of had my breaking point, which led to me leaving the school, uh, which was, I was put in a segregated meeting uh, with only white faculty and staff and children. So white identified students were in this meeting, only white identified students. And they were, this was supposed to be a meeting about how to take care of yourself during the pandemic. And it turned into a, uh, a struggle session about uh, white identity and white culture and why white culture uh, in particular um, Things like objectivity, things like showing, you know, perfectionism or worship of the written word or timeliness, um, things like that were actually white supremacy. Um, and now I, 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 the person running this session was very nice. She was a 20-something young woman. Um, and we actually had a very productive discussion during the meeting, and a lot of people thought it was great, but I had to say something, right? Because if you... As a math teacher, if you come after objectivity, um, you better come hard because I am not going to let you racialize objectivity. Okay, objectivity, mathematics is a you know we can communicate with alien life forms with the language of mathematics once we sorted out the language details, right? Because it's simply truth. Uh, 
Only white um, aliens. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and of course, since, you know, what, how debilitating is this message that, that you know, mathemat- mathematics is objective, but objectivity is white, as if to say China or India or Africa or all these other places, the Arab world didn't make tremendous contributions to mathematics, where, you know, mathematics is a global birthright for every culture has contributed to it. And you're going to say now to me that, you know, if I talk about objective truth, that's a white thing. Um, you know, I'm sorry, at that point, you're a white supremacist. Just, just on that, just on that, uh, are we implanting a cognitive dissonance in kids' minds by teaching them that science and maths on the one hand, which are reason and logic-based pursuits, um, but on the other hand, forcing social justice views on them, which increasingly see logic, reason, and objectivity as unimportant at best and tools of white supremacy at worst, like, what are these opposing ideas going to do to younger generations? Oh, well, I mean, you're right, and they... That's what SEL is for, social-emotional learning, is to reconcile the cognitive dissonance that they have between, you know, trust the science and, you know, your feelings are, are the most important thing. So the, if you see knowledge as being instrumental in social change, you are go, instead of truth, you are going to have massive contradictions, okay? And, you know, having students reflect their own mental states and physical states of confusion back to themselves with questionnaires and kind of saying in touch with their feelings is going to keep them in a passive receptive state where they are simply thinking about you know their own well-being and health and they're not actually you know that that to me is the ultimate gaslighting right they're not actually going to raise uncomfortable questions about these contradictions they're going to personalize them and and try to you know think of you know, well, how can I cope with this? Um, it really is quite sinister in my view. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's something that um, I don't, you know, I haven't looked into you know, completely, but I think that there's a lot of, a lot of really dangerous stuff there. So you, you, in back, back to our training session, you, you voice your uh, uh, dissent. How did, how did that go? Well, I was, I was, um, now, the facilitator put up the slide that said um, all of these various characteristics of white supremacy. I later found out that this instrument, this PowerPoint, is basically copy-pasted from something from 2001 written by a woman, like, in a day who had a bad day. Uh, and so there's absolutely no, there's no empirical basis for this whatsoever. It really is just something that was just copied from place to place and, and seemed to fit the narrative and everyone, and you'll see it everywhere. I mean, it's in, it's in corporate trainings, it's in education, it's, it's everywhere. Um, and then, you know, she said something to the students, and I can see in the Zoom meeting that all the students, you know, they have bowed heads, their posture is, supplic- is supplicatory, um, you know, they, they look, you know, that they're scared to, like, and I know, and I know, not all of them agree with it. And she says to the group, "Well, as you look at this list of characteristics of white supremacy culture, you may start to have white feelings." I hate and this. and I just, I just was, I had to punch, I had to punch the unmute, and I said, "What is a white feeling?" Uh, and I betrayed some annoyance. Like I'm not going to lie, but I tried to, you know, ask it in a constructive way because I knew that. Uh, 
I mean, white had, whiteness has become this kind of catch-all taboo, right? You can just throw anything into it, right? Think of any object and make it white, and then suddenly it's this carrier of some uh, primordial historical evil. Um, so, you know, she said, well, you know, that started a debate, right? So that, you know, some people in the chat, with the chat was going, and some students started chiming in, and and even some of my colleagues started chiming in, and that sort of started a, a like an authentic discussion broke out. I was very pleased because I was just I was irritated, and I was I had sort of had it with the fact that these students that I in every one of these meetings I had seen, none of these students had ever seen a, a teacher publicly object in any substantive way to what was being presented to them as knowledge when it is actually belief. It's just a set of beliefs, okay, like a religion, like you were saying, and they're being presented to them as knowledge, and it is it just, it's just deeply wrong. Uh, and so I wanted to question it. And my hope was, you know, that, that I, would, I knew I would get blowback and pushback, and that was great. Like, people were saying, Mr. Rossi, you don't understand because you have privilege, and, you know, you're white, and you don't get it. And, you know, and I was like, oh, you know, okay. But other kids were saying, look, you know, I don't think I'm ignorant just because I'm white. Um, you know, I think it's more complex than this. Uh, some of the teachers came out, and one one woman started crying that you know, in her in, she's from Europe, and how she wrestles struggles with her white identity, but she thinks that these things go too far, and it was sort of like a, a mental prison break going on. Um, and I was pleased, and I, I was encouraged to actually sort of question the nature of racial identity in, in the first place, right? Racial racial identity, if it is, you know, and I think it is a social construct that was created. It it, it 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 covers a lot of bases, but it's actually in itself, it doesn't mean anything, right? Culture, ethnicity, and ancestry, these are real things. Race is a proxy for that, that is a sort of convenient fiction, and now we're going to re-racialize the kids with this thing, which is a fiction, um, you know, to sort of internalize it. How do you get from, you know, point A to B to C, where from internalizing it, uh, you're actually going to transcend it? That, that's not how things work, right? What you see in the world is what you are, what you become, and you just embody it harder and harder. So I, um, uh, I, I actually, I said, you know, I'm, I don't, I don't, I didn't say I didn't think I was white, but I did say to what extent must I identify with a, a category of identity simply because other people see me that way, which is the basis for their logic is that if, pe if you pass as white or if you're seen as black, then it's as if you are. So you're treated with a social opprobrium or privilege based on that. And my, my statement was, you know, well, if everybody jumped off, you know, if everyone told you that you should jump off a bridge, should you jump off the bridge? Should you adopt a falsehood simply because everyone else believes it tr it's true? Um, and since their, their belief is so deeply social constructionist, they might, they would say, well, you actually can't not believe it. You're not, you're not allowed to not believe it because um, you know, you have no independent understanding of truth outside of your social context. And I don't think that's true. I think we have all kinds of ways of understanding truth, um, no matter what the social context, context, if we're presented with contradictions. And isn't it irresponsible for the people whose job it is, who see deeply through the fiction of race, to perpetuate it on these kids? Uh, so I, you know, I, I question the nature, you know, the reality of race, essentially. Um, but I didn't question its reality so much as I questioned its truth, right? Things can be false and real at the same time. And I really wanted to explore that distinction. 
Um, but I was ne- I wasn't allowed to proceed with the argument uh, or the or the investigation because I subsequently had my classes taken away and I had to attend several um, hour multi hour meetings with the administration where they would uh, try to get me to recant or say or admit to the harm that I caused and so on and I didn't do that uh, and, and when I didn't do that they became more and more aggressive accused me of harassment accused me of um, you know, causing trauma to the students with my questions. Um, you know, even though the, you know, the result, two days later, the facilitator came back to the school and said, you know, I thought it was a great discussion. You know, I, I mean, sure, I, I understand that people were a little bit upset um, and we have to be careful about that. But, but you know, Mr. Rossi's comments were, were not, uh, you know, meant in bad faith. I mean, and so I, I think... Uh, but was that facilitator uh, sort of disappeared in the Chinese Communist Party sense? Like after that, <laughs> like, I don't know. I know that that she uh, hasn't several... come up in any of the any of the follow ups that we've read about online. No, 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 no. She, you know, she'd been asked for comment multiple times, but she's she out there silent. sitting there reading Common Sense, reading all the stuff, and just going, "Ooh, hope I don't hope my phone doesn't ring." Yeah, you know, I mean, it's a it's a it's a tough position, and um, you know, I think. Uh, I almost don't blame her because it's weird though. If um, I worked at the New York Times, I read I read your story in the New York Times. If I worked in the New York Times, I might be giving her a call. They did, they yeah, did, right. and they you know just declined to comment. As far oh, as I know, yes. I mean I was but told I was it. asked if I could help. I was asked if I could help get them in touch with her, and, and I I said I don't, I don't think she would talk to me. But I love um, it. I love it when they go. Oh, okay, yeah. we'll leave it then. Like and they, they, yeah. they, don't, they don't always do that though. <laughs> they don't always go. Oh, that's okay, a difficult. We'll yeah, that's a difficult conversation. Yeah. You know, they seem to, they, they, they claim to like difficult conversations. Well, how did you go from, from that meeting to then writing uh, a piece for Barry Weiss's Substack? Yeah, so I didn't have my classes reassigned, in, you know, immediately. I was, um, I continued to teach. We had, um, we taught hybrid, so we had some days in school and some days uh, virtual. Uh, but, you know, when in cases when we were in school, I had to teach both virtually and in the classroom, like, you know, so there were live kids and kids on zoom and um it's very technically demanding a lot of a lot of us struggle with that but we did the best we could um but you know my you know many of the teachers many of my colleagues were using me as an object lesson lesson in their classes with the students i can think of at least two who did this um because i heard i heard from other people um that I was sort of a, a case study or a poster boy in white fragility right mr rossi is an example of what you know, of, of how white people can react when confronted with, you know, white, with a mirror is held up to their own privilege and, and white supremacy. Um, so, you know, and then they read a statement to the whole entire school at the exact same moment in time. I think I discussed this in, in the article where they talked about a certain individual. Uh, everyone knew who it was. It was me, uh, you know, who questioned the reality of racism, I didn't question the reality, I questioned the truth of it. And they tried to, they, they read this lengthy statement, it was very interesting, about how, you know, race may be a social construct, but it's, it's they, they felt the need to really explain their position. And it, and it really didn't, it really didn't explain very much. It didn't get to the heart of what, what I think the essential contradiction is. Um, you know, but, you know, I was, clearly singled out for the students, um, everyone knew who I was, and I could walk around the school hearing them read about the incident 
and they re- they recommitted their, to their um, mission of, of quote unquote undoing racism, which is again this thing which is very interesting. The idea that you can undo history um, is you know that's deeply utopian thing that you can try to do. Yeah, you can you can try to make things a little better. You can create a fairer society. The idea that you can you can undo the crimes of the past. You can't do that without a time machine. So I don't, you know, I, I found it very strange. So you write this epic essay, which everyone needs to read, if they haven't already read it already, in Common Sense uh, by Barry Weiss. And it was really early in her in in her uh, run, if memory serves. It mm-hmm. was, it was, it was a, this is like a real uh, opening night piece, sort of. <laughs> mm-hmm. And yeah, um, no, I'm glad. I was really grateful to the opportunity. And, um, you know, she's gone on to like, the thing is having tremendous success and it's great. Um, uh, and I, uh, you know, there was, there was my piece and there was another piece by Andrew Gutman, uh, the, the Brearley parent. I think he, his was reprinted a couple of days later. Um, and, you know, I think it did, I think it did have an impact. I'm proud of it. I'm glad I spent a lot of time crafting it and really thinking about what I wanted to say and, and getting it right. And I, I reread it for this interview and I was, you know, looking back on it, I stand by everything. Like it's, it all happened. Well, the administrators don't agree with you, uh, uh, Paul, because mm-hmm. they they came back and and refuted some of the claims. Uh, if mem- now, correct me if I get the order of this <laughs> wrong or anything like that. So some mm-hmm. of the claims were refuted, um, and then uh, you responded uh, in kind, um, obviously with some consult- consultation, uh, and released some phone recordings uh, to set the mm-hmm. record straight. Is that right? Yes, um, they, you know, I can't recall exactly what their refutations or their attempted refutations were. I think they claimed that I had misrepresented some, some, some things in my piece, but they, I don't believe that they were specific about it. Um, and if, if they were, and you know, I'd be happy to address them. Um, but then, uh, so in response to that, I said, well, you know, I'm surprised that you, that you're, actually trying to refute my, my article because you agreed with me in a private conversation that there was a problem with these things at the school. Um, and I cited three things that the head of school had said in a private conversation with me, and then he, uh, he denied those things in a, in, a, in a letter that he posted in response. So there was, this, there was this week or so where we were kind of lobbying PR missives back and forth. Uh, and then since I had recorded that meeting, because I was fearful for, you know, losing my job and I felt I needed to protect myself. And in New York state, we are a one party consent state. So you don't need to have the consent of both parties to make a recording. Um, I released the sections that pertain to uh, what I had said that he said, and he indeed said those things. And you can hear those things. Um, you know, I have, a, I have those recordings are published on Odyssey uh, now, as well as at the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism, which were they were helping me at the time. Let me ask you something, George, because I think those are I think there's something very different yeah. about having a single experience where you make sense of it, right? And having a teacher, an authority figure, talk to you endlessly every year, telling you that because you have whiteness, you are associated with evils, all these different evils. These are moral evils. It's not the same as taking like a physical thing because it doesn't affect your 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 moral value. That's the problem. The the 
the the fact is that I'm agreeing with you that there has been a demonization that we need to get our hands around in the way in which people are doing this understanding. Okay, so you agree that you, we're demonizing kids? We're demonizing um, kid. We're, we're demonizing white people for being born. And uh, and are some of our and students I'm white people? Stuff. What are some of our students white people? Yes. Okay, so we're demonizing white. We're demonizing white kids. Why don't you just say it? We are, I, we are using language that makes them feel less than um, for nothing that they are personally responsible for. You, you can you you can have and and I'm happy to keep debating and I don't actually have any doubt because I've known you for nine years of your sincerity in your belief and I also um, have grave doubts about some of the doctrinaire stuff that gets spouted at us in the name of anti-racism. Like what? And and, and so. I don't disagree entirely with some of your points of view. Can you elaborate? Because it uh, would help me. It would help me understand so, like what's so going on. I think that one of the things that's going on a little too much, and, and we've talked about this, is that um, the demonization of being white um, and, and the attempt to link anybody who's white to the perpetuation of white supremacy. Thank you. Thank you, George. So there is no question that there is an entire strain in here that um, causes that misinterpretation. Now, I am someone- Wait, 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 wait a minute, but what about impact over intent? Don't no, those no, kids I, get the I, benefit of impact over intent? When I heard these recordings, I was following in real time, it was, Quite spectacular. What does it feel like to be like Han Solo and know that you've got the blaster under the table? Just like, you know, when, when this guy has said <laughs> something that's completely false. And did you just go, I've got you, brother? Yeah. I mean, there was there was like a tremendous, uh, to be honest, like, yeah, it was like a tremendous, um, you know, finally, finally, I'm, you know, there, there, it's impossible after going through years of this where you're told one thing in private. Right, because they're masters of dissimulation and and sort of humoring you. You know, I had been led for years to believe that the objections that I shared with them in private, that they were thinking about them, they were going to make changes in the school, they were going to do things about it in the school culture, and then they would do nothing, and then they would simply double down. Um, so, you know, the fact that he admitted that there was demonization going on—it wasn't my word. I didn't put it in. His, he came up with it himself. Um, and that, you know, some of the things that we're asked to do in the name of anti-racism are, you know, I, I forget the exact words, but um, have gone too far. Uh, you know, the idea that you're ahead of school and you don't do anything about it, if you know that, mm -hmm. right? That was the thing that said, okay, I got to do this because, you know, I, I, I can understand his position. I certainly have empathy for his position. Um, he, a, a school like Grace Church has multiple constituencies, right? And so it, the person who's in charge of that has to, it's kind of in a position where you kind of have to speak out of both sides of your mouth based on the nature of the position, a little bit, right? You can't overdo it like he did, but you, you do have to frame things in, in such a way that you keep a lot of people happy who are paying, you know, $60,000 a year, whatever the hell it was. Um, and, you know, I felt like 
someone in George's position, George Davison's position. He's the head. He was the head of the whole school, and he was the person I spoke to and released the recordings of. Is sort of like someone who's being drawn and quartered. It's not getting. It's not between a rock and a hard place. It's you're actually getting pulled in in multiple directions by different constituencies, so that you you know you essentially are being put on the rack. And I and I have a lot of empathy for it, but at the same time, I realized that I had to you know had to do this. Um, because it had gone too far. And I personally knew that there were kids that were being totally intimidated by their teachers in the situation. I had a kid come to me, uh, you know, thanking me for speaking out in that February meeting, but looking over his shoulder at the, you know, cause there were cameras. He was worried that his teacher was going to see him on the cameras coming to talk to me. And, you know, uh, and he had reason to believe that too, because he told me, he proceeded to tell me multiple stories about how that teacher had, um, held him after class because he defended capitalism. Um, you know, things that are just ridiculous to say, you know, I, and another teacher that said you know, when he questioned uh, or a friend of his had questioned the statistics around um, the deaths of, of trans people, um, you know, whether that was disproportionate or was it, were the, were the, were the murders because they were trans or, you know, that, 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 that teacher said, you know, I'm going to be watching you to make sure you do better. You know, you you committed harm to our oh, trans students today do better. with that question. Mm. There it do is. better, I'll, and, I'll, yeah. and I'll be watching you, right? Mm. So I knew that something had to be done, and uh, and I did it. And yes, it was a hand solo moment, but it was followed quickly by um, a kind of pity uh, uh, for him because you know he had to. I, I heard through sources that he had to really do a fall on his knees apology. Uh, to the to the school and to say that I had somehow tricked him and you know he he released something saying that I had tricked him. Um, I didn't. Trick but him. but what I find interesting is if these people whole, wholeheartedly believe what they say, then why do they not sing it loud and proud? You know, George seemed quite timid when you were pushing him uh, in the phone conversation. Mm -hmm. If if they are on the right side of history, then he's got nothing to worry about, right? Well, you know, it's interesting. I had had to his credit, he every year he he would have. 30-minute meetings with every member of the faculty and staff. So that's, you know, that's a lot of scheduling. That's like, you know, 70 meetings, 70 half-hour meetings. And it, at every previous meeting, 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020, he had done that. He had been wholeheartedly, you know, completely, uh, you know, pro-anti-racism. We're doing the right thing. This needs to be addressed. We need to, you know, and I, okay, you know, I'm going to tell you that I think that there are, some bad signs going on here. Um, there's a, there are moral hazards. You know, if you're going to define your school against something, but you don't really know what racism is, you need to be very clear about what it is so that there's an objective standard, you know, objectivity again. Um, but he seemed to say, no, we'll figure it out. We'll, we'll get through it. We'll, you know, trust me. Uh, and this was the first meeting I had had with him where he suggested, at a meeting where he was essentially reprimanding me. I mean, I had, I had embarrassed the school. I had, because our, our yearly meeting took place a week after this, this February Zoom meeting, I had embarrassed the school. Um, I was supposed to be doing something else at the time. I shouldn't have been even on the meeting because I was on a field trip with kids, but I, you know, it was being covered. So, um, so you know, there were, there were uh, but there was a first time that he mentioned any problems with what was going on. And I was shocked and I was pleased. Um, at the same time, but also kind of scandalized because like, well, you really do think that you really do see something's wrong. So you got to fix it. And he had he had some ideas. He said, well, you know, at the end of the year, we're all going to come together and we're going to, you know, reset 
And I'm going to read uh, Abraham Lincoln's favorite, famous speech from, you know, with malice towards none. Uh, you know, and I'm like, that's not going to do anything. You have ideologues teaching in your school. You have set up an entire system where the, you know, I said my metaphor was the barn doors open and the, everyone's in the barn. These people want to, they don't care about your beautiful uh, over a hundred year institution. They want to transform society and they're using young minds to do it. And he's, and he to be, and, and you're being very charitable to him and very generous, which is great, but, but uh, he's enabled this and he's getting paid like $5,000 a day like just to be there and to and to yeah his job is to communicate with people but this guy's an enabler and um and it, I, i'm so outraged because those, those those recordings were just such such a uh a smoking gun moment where i was like this is yeah as ricky said why wh what's wrong guys like if, if you love what you say if you believe it i think it should be i i, I reckon they should say it loud put it everywhere, put it on t-shirts, put it, just get it out there. But, but instead what I see is, is tap dancing and, and playing with language and yeah. And, and uh, these people seem to live in the ellipses. They love ellipses. They go, well, mm. dot, dot, dot. And then mm -hmm. you've got to fill in uh, the, the right, you know, and right. you go, and then you, you end up saying, yeah, cause of whiteness. Right. And they go, Hmm. They don't right, say that. Right. You know you what I know mean? It. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, that's, that's, that is a, that's a persuasive technique. It's, it's called the vacuum, right? Yeah. So you, you leave, you leave this pregnant pause and you get the person to fill in the pause. And that way you haven't said, you haven't said anything. And this is what, this is actually like an indoctrination technique too. Mm -hmm. You'd see this in the classroom. Well, that, that's a Scientology technique. The, the, the whole thing where they hold the cans and they do the, the e-meter reading. Oh, right, they, the e-meter, yeah. Yeah, they leave kind of a pause. Oh, something, read, something you know, I, I measured something right. on the e-meter there and then you kind of fill in the gap and they go, yes, it must have been that, you know. It's cold, yeah, it's cold reading. I mean, it's, it's the mm. same techniques like uh, charlatans use it all the time. Um, car, car salesmen, you know. It's 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 with the oldest stuff in the book. Well, Paul, I always be mindful of your time, but but uh, look, you've obviously had time to reflect on the whole episode, no doubt, and you've mm. you've probably received a lot of feedback, you know, uh, over the, mm. over the over the years and whatnot. And so, do you think you could give us give our listeners a, a sort of a down and dirty playbook of what to look for and what to do if they think their school is going down this path? And this could be from the perspective of educators, parents, or, or students, or, or whatever you think. Yeah, I think the people that need to be most vigilant are the parents. I think one of the positive signs in the cultural in the culture in America has been the parents' rights movement, um, even in the level of just transparency. Let's just talk about um, many of these schools, particularly the private schools. They they actually the NIS, the organization I was talking about earlier. They have a handbook for how to keep parents at arm's length, essentially, and I have that handbook. And they have pages in there about how, you know, as the experts, we are the senior partner in the, in the, in the student's development, right? The parent is the secondary partner, right? So there, it's the idea that the, these institutions are carving out an intimacy with your child, right? When, that, when they go to school, you know, they want to create a relationship. Okay, and this is where all the grooming stuff comes from. The, you know, they're not physically grooming the kids, but it is a great word if you're talking about intellectual and moral grooming, right? Grooming them into a belief system. Because they, 
And so what, what is apparent? What do you look for? The, the thing that I would say is try to get access to every assignment, okay? Every assignment, every activity, whatever you can get your hands on. And if you need to, you know, if you need to say it as, you know, I want to be able to, you know, assist my child. They, they're struggling. Maybe they need a little help academically. I want to provide that for them. You know, could I have access to the, the learning management system or, you know, whatever, the syllabus or something like that. The best thing, of course, is to just talk to your kid and, and, and get their cooperation so that they're, you know, that they're sharing what's going on. Um, and to listen, right? I, I think a lot of parents get into the, I don't have children myself. I, I'm not a parent. But I, I hear from the kids' side a lot of the things that may, that drive them away from parent their parents is uh, presumptions, assumptions about what they're doing, or jumping to conclusions, or you know, uh, being too being too aggressive, or, or or things like that. Just just ask your child a question and then don't interrupt them and let them you know. Once you get them talking, which can be hard, I know. It's like just elicit, elicit what they're feeling, what are they thinking about what's going on in the classroom. And, and if you can, ask, ask a question which gets them to reevaluate or maybe have a counterbalance to what the teacher's feeding them. Because I, I guarantee you, like, the, in 99% in of the cases, these schools, like, the teachers are feeding them a particular type of, you know, woke ideology around particularly history, literature, although now it's even in language and math and science. Um, so, you know, if you've had that relationship with your child up to that point, that really helps because then they're going to, they're more likely to, to communicate. Uh, um, but, you know, also reach out to the teachers and, you know, a lot of these teachers, if you're polite and nice and respectful of the teacher, they'll share this material with you because, because they're proud of it, right? They're changing society. They want you to be on board. They, they want to create an entire uh, universe of agreement around these ideas so that, when the child goes home, the, the parent is also aligned with the social justice ideology. And then so, you know, that just helps them. Um, so there's, there are ways that you can engage um, with teachers uh, to get that material. And that's, that's the first thing. And then the other thing is to reach out and find teachers, other, other potential teachers or parents that are also uncomfortable with it because then you can form a, an actual power block the one thing that these schools, particularly the private schools, do not want is to confront parents as a group. That's why they will always push you to do one-on-one -on -one interviews where they can tell you things and pat you on the head and send you away. Um, but they will never have like a town hall where they're they're taking questions from large groups of parents. We've seen those. They, yes. they are his, you know. <laughs> Spectacular. That's, you, yeah. you get that in public school because the, the school boards have to do that, right? That's in the... That's in the rules, but in private schools, they don't have to do that, and they'll avoid that as much as possible. They're some of my f my favorite uh, social clips. Seeing those, yeah, yeah, it's great. We're coming to the end of, of our interview here. Uh, we thought maybe you could tell us a little bit about chalkboard heresy. Yes, uh, we're really excited about that. There's a I, I've been I've made friends with a a, t a public school teacher who's very vocal on Twitter. Uh, he taught at um, a school uh, in a school district near Chicago. Uh, and, you know, he has, um, we've decided to create a channel where we are going to host teachers, mostly teachers, some parents and some, stu you know, some uh, older students potentially um, to hear from them about what they're experiencing in their, in their jobs, in their careers, in their schools, and really workshop strategies for how to, 
how to push back and bring more viewpoint diversity to the classroom, more balance to the to the discussion, uh, how to bring confidence to students who are questioning this material, because ultimately the best the best advocates uh, for a more balanced perspective are going to be the students because they're going to have to live in this world with all these other other kids. So, you know, we want to give that platform as much you know, as much as we can. We just had our first guest. We released that uh, last week, uh, a teacher named Theodore Olson, who was who uh, taught in the St. Paul School School District in Minnesota, who was who was canceled way back in 2017. And he was he was not only canceled in his district, but he was hounded from we listened to the episode to school. This oh, guy, you did. Okay, it's, yeah. yeah, it's it's great. Everyone should everyone should check it out. This this Thank poor you, guy. Yeah. This poor guy was fired like ten times. And yeah, and he's a liberal. I mean, he's not. He isn't. He is not a fire breathing conservative. Far from it. He's, you know, he at his current job, he talks about how much he loves the, the diversity and the, you know, his his crime. Uh, but I'll, I'll let I'll let our listener listeners your listeners listen to it. But um, it was pretty minor. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty harrowing story actually to see it's how that's affected him too. Just the hounding from mm. from job to job. Yeah. Um, well, just a tiny tiny follow up to that because we, we are wrapping up. But do you think that there's been a uh, a shift since his day in 2017, 2016, mm. and now? Do you think that that landscape has changed? Do you think that these pla- some of these places might be a little bit more hesitant to to be so fast and loose in terms of running people out? I, um, you know, I, it's hard for me to speak to the, to the public school environment. Um, I tend to think yes, because there is much, if, if you think about the PR war, uh, I think that we made a lot of progress in the PR. I mean, there, there are more, parents are more vocal. Um, not many teachers are vocal, not as many as I had hoped, but some. Um, that's probably because, because unions are still uh, very social justice oriented. Uh, but, you know, I, I would say, um, you know, I think there's been progress. I'm not sure how much institutional progress has been made. Like all, all of this material is still in the schools, most of them, right? There have been bills passed. There have been laws passed. I tend not to be sanguine about the prospect of these laws. They're not, some of them, I think, are overreached. Some of them are better crafted than others. But essentially, when, this, when the door closes, you know, the teacher's in control. And if, you know, unless they're on libs of TikTok, going absolutely batshit, um, you know, they're not going to get caught, right? And there are subtle ways. I think one of the best, one of the best illustrations of that it was the recent Project Veritas video where I think it was an administrator and the, the, the honeypot, whoever it was, was asking them, <laughs> you know, how do you indoctrinate the kids? And he says, you know, well, we don't just tell them what to think, right? I mean, it's more subtle than that. Uh, for example, with the Dobbs decision, the overturning of Roe versus Wade, you know, we'll say something like, well, you, you know, the majority of people in the country feel that, um, you know, that abortion is a basic human right. Um, you know, but this small group of, of mostly men decided to take that away. Um, do you think that's fair? Right. And what, what child is going to say, well, you're going against... Well, no, I don't think that's fair, right? And and the, that's not the kid's fault. But the intellectually honest position would be to, would be to say, you know, uh, actually, you know, sometimes we go against the will of the majority when it's just. For example, in the case of Loving versus Virginia, where 
You know, most of the country was against interracial marriage. And the Supreme Court said, no, that's wrong, and we're going to go against. So the casuistry, the, the motivated reasoning around these things is, is something that, you know, they're, they're aiming at children, okay? That is completely irresponsible. As an educator, you have, you have to, you know, devote, you know, some time to the principal, not just use it, you know, willy-nilly when it suits you for your agenda. So I, I thought that that was pretty revealing. Well, I'll say what James Lindsay can't say on Twitter. Groomers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, we, we, we have a, a final question that uh, we, we would like to ask all of our, uh, sure. all of our guests, and that is, uh, what are you reading right now? Oh, you know, I'm reading um, Thought Reform, a book on, on the Communist Party in China, refugees from the Communist Party who were, who were uh, interviewed by a psychologist. I think it's psychology, thought reform and the psychology of totalism. I think, was that it? Or is it a different one? I'm, I get confused. I'm really bad with titles of books because I, I start, I dig into the book and then I can't remember the title. Um, but uh, another book that I read, which is terrific recently, is called, is just called Destructive Generation. Destructive Generation. I don't know if you've heard of this book. Uh, Peter Collier and David, uh, uh, and I think his name is, uh, I'm going to forget the second author's name, but it's their series of vignettes and narratives told about the 60s and 70s when, you know, groups like the Weathermen, the Black Panthers were really ascendant in, in the counterculture and what it was like because these, these the authors were sort of ex-lefties that went, became neocons and what it was like to actually be involved in, the, in these, you know, in these groups at the time looking, looking back on it. Um, and it's extremely well written. It's excellent uh, narrative and you can get it on Amazon. To, ch- to check it out because the 60s yeah. is certainly, uh, you know, it's one of those hallowed times of, of the left. They sort of hold it up as being like... Yeah, you know, and he talks about how, you know, the 60s was sanitized on purpose by people who wanted to reconstruct its memory in a particular way to brush under the rug the extremeness, the extreme ideology. and So, so that he gets into that too. That that's mm-hmm. kind of like as much of a fiction as the Confederate statues are in the South. We have our own fiction about, you know, the 60s were this magical time, you know, not really. Definitely have to read that one. Well, Paul, look, to, to be honest with you, there's, there's, I think we've got three pages of questions we didn't ask, so we're going to have to ask <laughs> okay. come, come back. Uh, I'd next, love to come back, sure. Next, next year, uh, and we'll check in with you, and hopefully you're, you're many episodes deep on, on uh, your new podcast, and we can, we can catch up on a whole range of things. That'd be terrific. That'd be terrific, guys. Thank you for listening to the New Flesh podcast. If you like our work, please consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or even writing us a review. It really does help the show reach a wider audience. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, long live the New Flesh.